Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let's continue this, the prayer of that song. Our Father, we thank you for this truth that you do never let go of us, that we are safe in your Son's hands, and no matter what comes our way, we don't need to fear because you're with us. And we know we need to remember this throughout our lives, moment by moment. And so we pray that you would strengthen us through your word now for that purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, we'll read verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, we're taking these months to consider Jesus' messages to seven local churches in the first century. And we don't have anything quite like these messages that Jesus gave to those churches. We believe that the Spirit of God inspired all of Scripture and therefore all of the letters that are to various churches in the New Testament. And so, we have many, but in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus told the Apostle John to write these direct messages to seven local churches, and John did it, and we have these in front of us today. And each of these seven churches faces some kind of challenge. Some of them are facing challenges well, and Jesus commends them for it. Some of them are not facing them well, and Jesus warns them. Most of the churches have a mixture of commendation and correction. So this morning, we're looking at these words that we just read together, the words to the church at Smyrna. This church has nothing negative said about it. It's one of two, two of these seven churches where that's true. Jesus gives no corrections, no challenges, no warnings, but He does address a challenge. This is a suffering church. Life isn't easy for Christians in that city, and it's not going to get easier anytime soon for them, just the opposite. It's going to get harder. The culture of that time in that place was growing increasingly hostile to Christians, and things are about to get worse for them. They're about to be persecuted intensely for being Christians in this city. And so, in light of more hostility coming on their horizon, Jesus calls them to not be afraid. That's His main challenge here. He calls them to not fear these coming trials. He calls them to be courageous. Now, that's striking because He didn't just want them to know that suffering was coming and help them just be prepared mentally, knowing that it's coming. He commanded them here not to be afraid. So, He didn't 
comfort them in the sense of saying, I know you will be afraid and that's okay. No, he commanded them not to be afraid. The living and exalted Jesus commands our emotional states. He commands us to not fear certain things. And in this single exhortation to the church in this season of its life, he calls them to courageous endurance in a hostile culture, to not deny him, to not compromise the truth in big ways or in little ways. When faced with death or faced with someone looking at them strangely in the workplace or neighborhood, he calls them not to hide their identity of being Christians, but to be courageous. And so we need this. Today, most of us will probably not experience the intensity of the suffering that this church was facing at the time and would face in the near future, but we will experience it in measure. And to the degree we do, we receive Jesus' call to courage here. So let's ask three questions about this kind of courage. That's really what, the, what Jesus is calling them to here, to have courage in the face of a hostile culture. So what is it? What is this courage? Second, why do we need it, and how do we get it? So this short message, four verses to Smyrna, answers these questions. And this text teaches us three things then about courage, what it is, why we need it, and how to get it. So let's consider these. First, what is it? Well, Jesus gives two main commands in this short message. Both are in the middle in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, and second, be faithful unto death. So he calls them to fearlessness and faithfulness. Do not fear, but be faithful. Be courageous. So what is courage? Well, courage is the ability to do something that you know is dangerous or difficult. It's a strength of the mind and heart that enables you to be resilient. We know courage when we see it. And there's something that feels deeply right in our souls when we see courage or hear a call for courage. I remember a few years ago wrestling with a couple of my boys, Moses and Isaiah. I think Moses was probably four at the time, Isaiah maybe three, maybe a little bit younger than this. And we were wrestling together and it was fairly intense and it was getting increasingly intense. And there was a moment when Isaiah stepped outside because it was getting to be one-on-one -on -one between Moses and I. And Isaiah, almost three years old, he's watching with great intensity. And he's completely into it as though this is a battle and like a Braveheart scene. And, and he's leaning in. And then all of a sudden with this, all this facial intensity and emotion that, that this toddler could muster, he yelled out, brother, be brave. And I was struck by that. It, it actually wasn't so much amusing to me at the time as just it was a deep emotional uh, sense about that moment. I was struck at the core of my being because of how right that felt to see this brother calling his brother to bravery, to courage. He didn't give him advice about what moves to do next. He didn't say... Um, uh, you know, just don't worry about things. He didn't tell him to keep going. All of those would have been fitting things to do, right? But he called him to something more deeply, right? Be brave, be strong and courageous. Do not fear, don't give up. 
And here Jesus is calling His people to be brave, to be courageous, to not fear. Now, I don't think that we typically give much thought to that word courage or even the idea. I haven't much. Do you think of courage as a Christian virtue? Do you think of courage or have you thought of courage as something that Jesus requires of his people with a command from the risen King Jesus to his people? He commands courage. This call to courage stands out in the Bible in two ways. It's more common than we may think and it's more serious than we might have thought. First, it's more common than we may have realized. It's, this is a thread throughout the Bible. It's often on the pages from beginning to end. So Moses calls Israel to courage, and then immediately after that calls his successor Joshua to courage. In Deuteronomy 31, it says this, Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous, he says to Israel. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then he immediately turns to Joshua. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And then the Lord reaffirmed this personally to Joshua three times in Joshua chapter 1. In verse 6, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Verse 18, only be strong and courageous. King David said this to his son Solomon. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus often called his disciples to not have fear, to not be afraid, to be courageous. So this is more common than we may have realized in the Bible. And second, it's also more serious. We're hearing this particular call to this church in Smyrna on the pages of Revelation. And at the very end, there's a strong call to courage as well. So if you'd flip ahead to Revelation chapter 21 with me, this comes in the form of an implied warning against being cowardly, which is the opposite of courage. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 6, and he said to me, this is God speaking, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, that's what he says to every, of all of these seven churches here. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. So those who conquer, like in Smyrna, with courage, will have this full inheritance of the new creation coming. Verse 8. But, now here's a contrast. So all who trust Christ endure to the end. All of those who conquer have this inheritance, and now he begins to list those who cannot be counted among the faithful believers, who can't be counted among true believers. 
And listen to the first one. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The whole of the book of Revelation, whatever else comes to your mind when you think of this book, the whole of it is essentially a call to courage. It's a call to Christian courage and endurance, especially in a hostile culture where we're tempted to give up so that this life will be easier. And as this call to courage rolls through the pages of the book of Revelation, it comes to this climax at the end where these beautiful blessings of the new creation to be with God and His people forever are held in front of us. And then by way of warning, it lists those who will not be there. It lists those who prove by their actions that they do not actually trust in Christ. And among them are the cowardly. First among them in this list are the cowardly. I would not have expected that. So courage is an essential Christian virtue. It's one of the marks of God's people. When we become Christians, the Spirit begins to transform us to become like God in Christ. And one of the ways He transforms us is to work fearlessness into us. So I remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, there were these shirts that said, No Fear, right, with bold caps, strong letters. Anyone have those shirts? There's a few. Okay, well, the four of us had those. The rest of you saw them. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember these at least, right? Okay, it's, a, I guess, generational things too. Okay, so, bold, strong letters, no fear. I had one of those shirts, at least one of those shirts. It was around that time that I also became a Christian. But looking back, I never connected the two. I never thought about this message of no fear that calls to strength and, and powerful perseverance, a courage of the heart with these bold, striking, strong letters. I never thought to connect that message with my new Christian faith, with what it means to be a Christian, with who I should be becoming as a Christian. And I don't think anyone else was connecting the two either. But the Bible links them right here and throughout its pages and Jesus calls his church to have no fear. He commands his church to be fearless with this inner strength and courage. So, second question. Why do we need it? In a sense, we've been answering that question already in exploring what it is. Because God calls us to it. Because it's a, it's a necessary evidence of being a true believer in the end. But... There's other answers to that question, why we need it. Right after the introduction here in this message, Jesus says in verse 9 of chapter 2, I know your tribulation. So that's why they need it. They're going through affliction. Life is hard for them. This is a suffering church. And Jesus lists a number of ways that they are suffering. First, he says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. So the church is filled with people who are poor in one sense, but rich in another. They're materially poor, but they're spiritually rich. So they don't have the things that most of them might have wanted. They don't have the things that we would have wanted, but they do have Christ. 
which is better than everything. You know, it's interesting that this church is poor materially because they live in a very wealthy place. The city of Smyrna was a wealthy place at that time. So, it is helpful to ask the question, uh, why were the Christians in this wealthy city generally poor? Well, it could be because of how God often works. He chooses the poor to be rich in faith. But we also know that Christians were a marginalized group at that time and in this city. They were a misunderstood minority. They were often pushed to the edges of society. In, in cities like Smyrna, idol worship was the norm. It was a pervasive part of the culture. And some trade guilds required members to participate in idol worship. So, if people were required to worship idols, what happens if you're a Christian? And you're going to be faithful. You're not going to be a part of that. Often in that culture, too, they were to... They were required to honor the emperor as a god. They would sacrifice to him as a god. Later in the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire is referred to with this symbol of a beast. And it says that those who do not worship the beast will not be allowed to buy and sell. That's a way of saying those who do not participate in this cult of worshiping the emperor will be cut out of the economy. They'll be cut out of the opportunities to buy and sell. They won't be allowed on the inner circles that allow you to thrive in this society. So in many places in the Roman Empire, if you were not willing to express worship to the emperor, you were cut off from key parts of the culture that people wouldn't trade with you. I was in Egypt about eight years ago, and I spent time with a pastor in Cairo. And as he drove through the city, he talked about all the different places and buildings and stores and shops. And he talked about how on the surface here, this is about eight eight years ago or so, so things have even changed for the worse even now. But he said eight years ago, he said, everything looks okay. It looks like a pretty welcoming place. On the surface, Christians are welcomed and accepted just like everyone else. There's no problems. But he said, all of the people in power and in positions of power that give building permits and the ability to, to thrive in the society and open up storefronts and, and all these things, said they, they aren't believers and they subtly push Christians out of those places and don't let them in. So he said, very subtly, Christians cannot thrive in this culture well. And then he said, it's violent out a few miles, a few hours outside of Cairo, and it's not well reported um, against Christians. It's probably what it was like at Smyrna here. In very subtle ways, being identified as a Christian, being open as a Christian, living with Christian integrity would cut you out of certain career paths. Second, they were slandered. Jesus said, I know the slander that those, of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So they're slandered by Jews who did not believe in Jesus, and Jesus has harsh words for them here. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, we should realize immediately that this is not anti-Semitic. Jesus was Jewish, who's speaking this. John was Jewish, who's writing this. Some of the Christians in the church of Smyrna were probably Jewish. This is a specific condemnation of these people because they were slandering Christians, and this slander was probably not just personal, but public and political. Here's why. The next thing that Jesus says is that these Christians are about to be thrown into prison. That probably would have been a result of the Jewish slander at the time. Throughout most of the church, uh, most of the first century, Christians had protections for being Christians in that society. 
uh, protection of Rome. And this was because they were associated with Judaism. Roman rulers were tolerant of many religions as long as they would worship the emperor, as long as they were participating in all the other idolatry of the time. And so the Jews were the only religion that were granted an exception to that. They were monotheistic. They couldn't worship the emperor. And so they had an exception. They didn't need to worship the emperor. They could just offer sacrifices uh, in honor of the emperor's governance. They didn't need to make it an act of idolatry. And so in the early decades when Christians were around, they were viewed as under the umbrella of Judaism. And so they got the same protections. They didn't have to worship the emperor either, but many Jews became hostile toward Christians because the Christians claim to be the true Israel, the true people of God. They're the ones who embrace the Jewish Messiah, and that means any Jew who did not embrace the Jewish Messiah is no longer part of God's true people. They can't be considered part of God's true people. And so the, when the Jews became hostile, they could report Christians as not being a part of them, as being bad citizens, as being outside of the protections of Judaism and unwilling to worship the emperor. And then they fall under the condemnation of those who don't have an exception in the Roman Empire. And so Jesus says it's about to get worse. Verse 10, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And then he says, be faithful unto death. So what would these Christians be tempted to do in that kind of circumstance? Well, not be courageous, to be fearful, to consider compromising or adjusting to cultural expectations. And Jesus spoke this way to his disciples before the cross as well. He said that there would be great tribulation for his people. Many Christians, he said, would be delivered over to death. And he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. So for Christians, this is why we need courage because life will be hard for being a Christian in varying degrees in different cultures and in different times. But somewhere along the spectrum, every Christian will experience some form of persecution, whether mild and subtle or extreme and overt. So here's what it looks like when we have courage. It looks like one man who was from Smyrna that we know about, one who may have heard this message read, a man who became the bishop of Smyrna's church beginning in AD 115. His name was Polycarp. Some of you may have heard about him. He lived in this city where worshiping Caesar was mandatory, but he could not do that in good conscience, and he was eventually arrested. And the officer in charge of him upon that arrest seemed to have some sympathy for him, but he didn't understand why his convictions, Polycarp's convictions, needed to be so opposed to worshiping Caesar. I mean, some of these compromises that, that people thought Christians should be fine to do didn't seem like very big deals. I mean, what's their problem? Just offer some incense, offer a sacrifice, say Caesar is Lord. What's the problem with you guys? So he, he, he said to Polycarp, what harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor? You know, why do you have to give up your life for this? It's not a big deal. Polycarp wouldn't do it. And as a consequence, he was executed. But he said, for 86 years, I've been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so he was burned at the stake and run through with a sword. So how did he get that courage? 
How did the other Christians in Smyrna that persevered to the end get that courage? How do we have that kind of courage for extreme situations like that or so many of the little small challenges and temptations that will come to all of us and have come to us in living ordinary life uh, for Christ with integrity, not making compromises to get the promotion or avoid the demotion, not making compromises to have certain people not know that we're Christians because it will just risk awkwardness. How do we get courage? The answer is in the third question. So how, how do we get it and what's the answer? Well, here's what the answer is not. We don't get courage merely by told, being told to have courage. That's part of it. It strengthens us. Jesus commands us not to fear here, and that's part of what gives courage. But that's not the main way he motivates them here, or the primary way, or the comprehensive way. The primary way they seem to be motivated in this, in this message is surprising. It's not through being commanded, but through being comforted. Jesus comforts the fear out of them. Courage comes from an inner calm that's created by the comfort of Christ. That's where it comes from. It comes, the strength comes from being comforted. When we fear, we don't need to be just told not to fear. We need to receive a comfort that can drop down to the core of who we are and give us a restfulness in Christ that will drive the fears away and let us face anything. And we see four ways that Jesus puts comfort into our hearts so that we can have courage here. First, he reminds us that he has already done this. He has already done what he's asking us to do. For each of these seven messages, there's a beginning that draws attention to something true about Jesus. He's introduced as the one who's giving the message, but he's not just introduced by name. He's introduced by a description. And it seems that most of these descriptions that are given about Jesus at the beginning of these seven messages are tailor-fit to the needs of each particular church. He knows what each church needs, and he reveals who he is to meet that need. So each church has a particular challenge. So how does he introduce himself to a church that he says needs to be faithful unto death and then receive the crown of life. Well, he says in verse 10, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So he is the one who calls him to be faithful unto death as the one who was faithful unto death. He's calling on them to endure because that's who he is, and that's comforting to them, because he's not asking us to do anything he's not already done. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted to give up. He knows what it's like to be tempted to compromise, and he knows what it's like to endure to the end. So, this is a Savior whose words we can trust. He's given himself to us as an example. Jesus was the most courageous human being who ever walked on this planet. I think the, the moment of greatest courage was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's faced with what he's about to endure, the wrath of God in the place of cowardly people like us so often. And he needs to face the, the full wrath of God in our place for our sins. 
And he's praying there, crying out to the Lord. If there's a way for this cup to pass, let it pass. But then he says, not my will be done, but yours be done. But he's in agony in Gethsemane. He's in agony over prayer because the temptation is so strong to not go through with it. But when he walks out of that garden, he's walking in steps of courage, headed toward his crucifixion, facing not just physical pains as thousands have done, but these, this spiritual dynamic that's about to happen to him. But he went forward with resolve to rescue us by dying for us. Here's the second way Jesus comforts them. It's by assuring them that he knows their suffering. He assures us that he knows our suffering. He sees it and he understands it. Verse 9 begins, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. So he knows these things. He sees what's going on. In other words, they're not alone. Jesus Christ has been watching and he's aware of every bit of suffering that they go through. He sees reality clearly too. He says they're poor, but then he says, and I know you're also rich where it counts. So they're suffering for Christ and it would be discouraging to wonder if Jesus cares, if he sees it, if he knows about it, because they're not suffering for an abstract idea. They're not merely suffering for truths that they believe merely in their head or for a religion. They're suffering for a person, for Jesus Christ. And to know that he knows, to know that he sees, that would have been a comfort that they needed to be able to endure. So in our nation, there have been many brothers and sisters who have suffered. And many of them were African-American slaves. They suffered and Jesus knew them. And some of these brothers and sisters who suffered sang about their faith on these plantations. And one of their songs went like this. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And that's the comfort that Jesus gives to his people when they suffer. In Smyrna 2,000 years ago, on our own soil here in our nation, across the globe today, Nobody may know the suffering that his people go through, but Jesus knows, and that's deeply comforting. They were poor, but Jesus knew they were rich. They may have been slaves in different parts of the world. Those in America were, and Jesus knew they were free in a deeper sense. We're despised, and we know that Jesus loves us, and he's with us. Third, Jesus has a purpose in our suffering. This is the third reality of comfort that strengthens our conviction for courage. Jesus has a purpose in our suffering. Verse 10, behold, Jesus says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So the devil is going to throw some of them into prison. Well, why? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the devil's going to throw you in prison that he may test you. Is the devil's purpose to test the Christians? No, his purpose would be malicious. It would not be for their testing. Testing is God's purpose in suffering, which is why it says simply that you may be tested. The devil will throw you into prison that you may be tested. God is allowing them to be put in prison for the testing of their faith. So there are multiple forms of suffering and multiple sources 
uh, behind all those forms of suffering. And each have different purposes. Verse 10 gives us a mini theology of suffering here. When we suffer, we can see the human and physical causes, right? For these Christians, they wouldn't have seen the devil grabbing them and throwing them into prison. What would they have seen? They would have seen the Romans putting chains on them and putting them into a cell. So they would have seen the human agents in this suffering, the the Roman soldiers. But then behind that, Jesus is saying, behind this is a spiritual warfare. There's spiritual realities that you cannot see. And that's the devil throwing you into prison. But behind that, there's a third level, the deepest level. We can look behind that and see that God stands behind the suffering with good purposes for our testing. God stands above all our suffering intending good where others intend evil. So we need to look through our suffering, not just what our eyes see, but through it and behind it to see spiritual realities, sometimes demonic. And then behind even those to see a God who is with us and knows our suffering and has good purposes through it. Another reason we know God's in control here is the length of time that they'll suffer. Jesus says it will be for 10 days. So in a symbolic look like, book like Revelation, it's probably not 10 literal days. The point is that it's a limited time period. For some of them, it may be imprisonment unto execution. For others, they'll be released perhaps at some times. For others, it will be a different form of persecution, but it will be a limited time for them in that season of their church's life. And so this is meant to give us the comfort we need in order to have courage. Courage comes when we see that the suffering we face that gives us a temptation to fear, when we see that this is God standing behind it and he has good purposes. So courage comes then when we see suffering not ultimately as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. Isn't that the implication of this being a temporary test? It's a test to grow and endure. James put it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that's the goal of the book of Revelation, to create steadfastness in us. Fourth and finally, Jesus has a promise for our endurance. The end of the message holds out this promise. It's essentially the promise of experiencing all the blessings of eternal life. And it's put two ways, one positive, one negative. You can see it at verse 10, the very end of it. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So that's the positive way to put it. The negative way is at the end of the next verse. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the the second death. So Jesus gives two future realities here. There's the crown of life for those who hold fast to him to the end with courageous faith. And then there is the second death for those who do not conquer. And the second death throughout Revelation is referred to as the lake of fire. It is an eternal condemnation and judgment. So their great fear in this church right then may be death. But Jesus is promising that if they do not fear that death, they do not need to fear the next death, the second death. He said that there's only one kind of death to fear, and that's eternal death. And if you hold fast to Christ to the end, you do not need to fear that one. And in fact, you don't even need to fear the first one because Jesus is with you all the way through it. So in the end, if you hold fast to Christ, you don't need to fear death at all. So these are the comforts that create courage. 
These are the kinds of comforts that Polycarp believed and other brothers and sisters like him. He may have been there when this letter was read for the first time. And if not, he probably knew about this letter and what comfort it held out. And he would have been strengthened by it. So how do we respond to this? Well, first, we pray for the persecuted like we did already this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters in hard places. We pray for many churches that are like this church in Smyrna. Not every church will face this kind of suffering, but some do, and we should know about them, and we should pray for them, and pray for them to have courage and comfort. So we can pray this text accordingly. If you're wondering, what do I pray for persecuted brothers and sisters? Open up this text and just pray through the verses. Pray that they'd be comforted in these four ways that Jesus holds out to them here. Turn every line into prayer. Second, we embrace the call to stay in hard places and take the gospel to hard places. Jesus didn't tell this church to flee town because it was about to get hard. He didn't call them to move to an easier place because the people of Smyrna who didn't know Jesus needed the gospel just like everywhere else. Smyrna needed the church to shine brightly in their culture. Jesus doesn't take us out of the world no matter how hard it gets. He sends us into the world no matter how hard it is. And he also calls people to take the gospel to all nations, all people groups, even those that are the hardest to bring the gospel to. And so people in this room and family members who might go to a hard place to share the gospel, we embrace that. We prepare them like Jesus is preparing this church. And we pray for them. And we pray the Lord would bring such a comfort into their hearts that they would have courage to endure no matter what and receive the crown of life. Third, we prepare for whatever suffering may come to us right where we are. Jesus is writing to a church that has a growing persecution on the horizon. So they live in a culture that basically didn't like them, right? They were a misunderstood and marginalized minority. They lived in a culture that did not understand who they were as Christians and didn't like who they were as Christians when they found out. They live in a culture that didn't want them around. Our own culture today is a mix. Some parts seem to be shifting further in the direction of mild forms of hostility. And so we, each of us as Christians, need these words of comfort here. So no one here in this room may need to be faithful to the point of death. That may not come to anyone in this room. It may, but we do need to be faithful in other points, in other moments through everyday life where we're fearful and nervous and we compromise. And we need to be sensitive to know when we're doing that because I think we can have a false form of courage, especially if you've been gifted with a personality that's generally internally strong. You can feel like the, the power that you have or the strength that you have means that you have a resolve and courage when really you have to see are there compromises you've made in the way you speak to people about your identity in not sharing about Christ and not asking a question and not loving well in compromising ethically in your workplace in all of those ways no matter how strong of a person you feel that you are and everyone feels that you are that's actually been done out of fear. And you need a comfort to saturate your soul so that you can have the courage to do what's right, come what may, no matter how small or how big the consequences are. And finally, we need to realize that we need courage more than we think. Because courage is not about 
stirring up our own self-confidence. It's not about having a certain personality type. It's not self-assurance. It's about trusting so deeply in Christ's power and presence and care that we can't keep our Christian convictions to ourselves. And we hold on to them in the face of anything, big or small. So courage then doesn't come from thinking, what's my problem? Why am I so afraid? I'm better than this. No, it comes from thinking, I have a problem here. Christ is better than this. It comes from a deep sense of comfort from his promises, the comfort of Christ. So let's pray now for ourselves. Confess if you need to. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Pray for one another. Let's pray for the persecuted even again. And I'll close this in a moment. Father, we lift our hearts to you with these prayers in the name of Jesus, in the Spirit. Amen. Well, let's stand together and receive a benediction of God's grace. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, May he comfort our hearts and establish them in every good word and work. Amen. Go in peace.